The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Mr. Powell, you're a party pooper. Markets remain in a confused state. Crude oil seems to have a new floor and our guest talking about alternatives today is David Cavanaugh, the president of Dearborn Capital and Grant Park Funds. All this and much more on episode number 779 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Uh, this week and every week, so glad that you could join me. I'm Andrew Horowitz. I am the president of Horowitz & Company, and of course, the host of the Disciplined Investor Podcast and DH Unplugged as well. And uh, here we are in the summer, in the just, the just the depths of the brutalness of heat. I don't know if you've seen what's going on, but around the world, we're having all sorts of problems with regard to heat and heat waves and droughts and not putting a label on it, but it's just factually what is happening right now. And that is causing all sorts of problems with regard to cost factors related to electricity and natural gas and cooling and oil. And what's happening in uh, Europe, as a great example, is going to trickle down and cause some hardships for people because the cost of keeping cool and of just simple electricity is off the charts. I mean, I mean, literally off the the charts. We are in a situation now where it has become uh, redlined, red-lighted and emergency. I mean, this is dire, the situation that we're seeing a lot of places in terms of cost factors, the cost of, of natural gas and, and what's going to happen in the next few months due to a variety of things that we can blame on all sorts of various interests, whether they're political or not, whether they're uh, well, I, I guess we would say uh, uh, natural or not. But we're going to talk about some of that with our guest today because I am looking forward to having uh, David Kavanaugh on. But I wanted to go through a few things that are happening right now around the world, in the markets, and in particular what we saw on Friday. Because this week we saw, or last week I should say, we saw uh, throughout the week a very significant bid, a buy. And I, I think there was this there was feeling that the Fed was eh, maybe done or they were getting soft. <laughs> and ever since Powell's conversation that he had a month and a half ago or so where he commented that, you know, we're going to be really focusing on the data, which is important, of course. I mean, obviously, but we're going to be focusing on the data. And that created an undercurrent of, hey, you know what? Let's watch each and every single bit of data that comes in. And as it does, we're going to make a decision as whether or not there's going to be more rate hikes. Preposterous. You can't view one data point or one month of cumulative data points as a trend when it comes to this situation. Because once you have the genie out of the bottle, you've heard that before, when it comes to inflation, it's very difficult to slow down. It's like trying to turn a speeding locomotive 
from 60 miles an hour to zero on a dime. It doesn't happen. It takes a lot of room. So what happened this week was really fascinating. Because as, well, where are we now? End of August. So about this time. It's not exactly this day, but about this time every year. Jackson Hole, Wyoming is the setting where many of the global economic elite, whatever that exactly means, the elite, you know, the economists that are the elite and key economists across the world, meeting the central bankers and their clan. They get to Jackson Hole to spend a little time and meet and mingle. And they enjoy a lot of things like fly fishing and drinks and hiking and Maybe even, I mean, some were in, involved in all those, a few key conversations and, and, and discussions, maybe a little bit of learning, education between each other to spend time thinking about what is a good decision to be made for the global betterment of the economic situation and can help that. And they, and they do this. They, they make these decisions. And they make this through a variety of contacts, but also speeches and commentaries and little um, comments there that they're giving. So there are oftentimes very key piece of information that is provided. Now, this this week on Friday, 10 a.m., the stage was set. Fed Chairman Powell came right online at 10 a.m. to give a little speech, just a small little tidbit, because everybody was waiting with bated breath. What would Powell say? Is he going to continue on with the discussion about looking at the data? Or is he going to go back to the other Powell that was before last month that was like, hey, we are going to stop inflation, whatever it takes, whatever we're going to do. Listen, just wake up to the fact that this is going to be a long process because inflation is deep-rooted and we are going to go after it as much as possible and even beyond to make sure that it is stopped in its tracks. Well, we do know that these, the confab, whatever you want to call it, what happens in Jackson Hole, is often a platform for central bankers to, they make important monetary policy announcements. And this week was no different. And even though there was a, a good amount of, I would say, bullish sentiment that was going into not only the day, but the weeks ahead of where we were, one thing is, I think, very clear now, that Powell and the Fed are looking to hammer home the idea that that they're going to do whatever it takes to beat down inflation. They're going to make sure that they don't get this one wrong this time because they have been wrong time and time again in the past. And that has caused them a massive credibility problem. Therefore, what they want to do is make sure that they don't stop until they slay the dragon. There could be no more breaths left, no more heartbeat of this inflation monster. And again, if you recall, up until Friday morning at 10 a.m., there's a narrative that had been floating around that the Fed may be towards and closer to 
the end of their tightening cycle than the beginning. But when you listen to the comments of the prepared remarks in the first few sentences of Powell's speech that he gave, it was a 10-minute speech, they're seemingly saying something completely different. And I'm going to quote you right now. Restoring price stability will take some time and require using our tools forcibly, forcibly to bring demand and supply into better balance. Reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth. Moreover, there will be very likely some softening of the labor market conditions. And this is what's really important. He continues on. While higher inflation rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring down some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. Those last few lines right there, I think, clarifies the question as to the Fed's resolve on whether or not they're going to hike rates until the economy and inflation show, slow, slow down appreciably, I guess is the best way to describe that. So here we are with a realization slap in the face. Mr. Powell is a party pooper, right? From the bull side of things, he just not only previously reduced the amount of alcohol going into the punch at the party, but now he pretty much pulled the party bowl all the way and limited you to soft drinks and bottled water. This is not a change. It's more of a clarification. It is not a differential per se. It is more a fine point. They want to make it clear that even though they are going to be data dependent, what's going to happen is that they are looking at the bigger picture. And that is why markets got so giddy. And then on Friday had such pain. There was, there was too much, listen, there was too much giddiness going into things. We actually uh, reduced down positioning in our managed growth strategy. By the way, if anybody wants to look at an alternative strategy where we are we're trading actively. We go short. We have uh, positioning in cash, individual equities. L you need to go over to the Discipline Investor Managed Growth Strategy and check it out. There's a, 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 a just a little virtual tour. You can find that over on thedisciplinedinvestor.com. All the strategies that we manage, that we utilize for our clientele. And if you're in the boat that you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to be invested, but I know I should be for the long haul. And what do I do? Well, that's what we do. We create portfolios around the current and near-term situation with the long-term in, in, involved, and you should become a client. That's the bottom line of all this. Go over to the Discipline Investor. Just contact me, and let's get the conversation going. It's pretty easy. And if you've been stalling for a while and you're thinking, well, I'll do it later, just do it. We're back to school already. Almost the end of the year. Let's get this going. All right, enough of that. But seriously. Point is that we backed off on our long positions that were a swing trades last week because we said, you know what? We made huge profits in these. We have a short hedge on right now. We built back up the um, the short hedge, took it down a little bit at the beginning of the week. On Friday, took it down a little bit further. 
So we still have some hedge, but took off some of the, the, the excess on it. Um, and I think that right now have a, a nice cash buffer of probably eight, mm, the cash X hedge about 18% approximately right now. Um, and then you add the hedge back on. Point is that we are in a very precarious moment right now. Not terrible long-term, but a reality check that the Fed is pretty serious about this. Now, what's interesting about that is that bond prices and rates went the opposite way on Friday, which is a little bit weird. So the markets still don't necessarily believe in total. There's going to be a lot of heavy-duty, heavy-handedness. Okay. Uh, due to the fact that uh, we're probably going to enter into a recessionary time, which we are probably in right now, technically at least. So that gives you an idea of what happened. We're going to see uh, some important information next week. Next week, of course, is a shortened week. No, it's not. Next week is a full week. The week after is shortened with Labor Day coming up. But the summer is about to be over. We have the employment numbers coming up next week. We have um, some information about the unemployment rate, of course, and non-farm payrolls coming up next week. We have ISM numbers coming up. A lot of things that are very important. And we're towards the end of uh, earnings season. Retail, not looking so good. Hit or miss in a few different areas. But uh, specialty retail, lower end, lower price retail, not so good. Upper end, higher quality. Not, it's not necessarily quality, but... Higher cost. <laughs> Give me crap quality, but higher cost, right? That has done much better. So we see resilience in the upper incomes while there's a lot of suffering and problems in the lower. That is exactly what we've been talking about. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Because once, it's kind of like seeing the small cap stocks not do well, but the ultra mega caps do well. That's never a good sign necessarily because now we're finding that, um, you know, the undercurrent of the, the economy is not as strong. And um, when, the, when the final break happens, when the, the high end seems to turn, that's big issues and that's a problem. Anyway, let's, uh, let's take a moment and let's uh, talk about who we're going to be talking about or talking to, David Cavanaugh. He's the president of uh, and the general partner um, responsible for overseeing all operation activities um, since the formation of Dearborn Capital. Um, he, uh, also works with Grant Park funds. Um, he's has a long history of working in the commodities markets. And we're going to talk to him about alternative investing and try to understand a little bit more about what that all means. And let's get right to our guest, Dave. How are you? I'm very well in the middle of a two week vacation, which I rarely take. So I'm exceptionally well. You got me on a very, very good day. Oh, that's very good. And, uh, you, you, you have a little bit of a, uh, a Midwestern twang to your voice. You, uh, I know we've talked before, and you are a big fan of uh, some of the foods that I am. I mean, we actually talked about, and I have it on my list <laughs> from our last discussion, which is the show called. Oh, now I just forgot it. Uh, give me a second here. Not the beef. What was it called? The the You're chef. Close. The, the, the bear. The, the bear. bear. The bear. Which I got to watch. It's all about uh, Chicago beef, Chicago steak. That's good. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for joining us. I'm going to talk to you about, I really want to immerse ourselves into a discussion and education for our listeners about something that they, you know, they probably have heard about. They probably have seen commentary about more often lately than not, but this idea of alternative investing. And I know that could take on a lot of different uh, kind of looks but I thought I'd ask you first, what is your thought on the concept of alternative investing? 
Well, I, I guess the way I would define it is any investment that is not a, you know, buy, hold and hope strategy, uh, that there is some sort of active management associated with it. Uh, I know some people will say farmland is an alternative investment. Uh, gold is, you know, there, there's a number of things that are out there, but um you know, the way I would describe it is that there's some sort of active investment behind, uh, active management of the investment so that, um, you know, it's, uh, it can go in either direction. You know, you can profit from up markets, you can profit from down markets. Uh, you know, the, the one thing I would say probably, Absolutely flat markets across a spectrum of investments would be hard for anyone to make money. Really, there's only one strategy I'm aware of that would be option writing. And we don't, you know, most. Right, right. right. Try to collect. We don't do that. So let me me take you through just my mindset for just a moment uh, of, of what I see as the concept of the old diversification. And what I mean by that is that when people think about diversification, the basic is they, they immediately, I think, go to, well, don't have all your eggs in one basket, right? That's kind of like the diversification 101 or even, you know, minus one, right? That's the concept. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and then, but what does that mean, right? Well, I started to think about this years ago with the idea that diversification is, okay, I'll go with don't have all your eggs in one basket. I'm, I'm good with that. However, I wanted to also expand the concept into other uh, areas of not only differing assets, but differing ways to handle those assets. So that in theory, the idea of more active trading is a diversifier, um, potentially going uh, into a position of um, a different asset class that also has active management versus passive is a diversifier. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, I mean, that's how most of the programs that we've invested in over the years. Um, and it, my, I think I made my first managed futures investment in 1984 or five. Uh, I mean, that's the hallmark of it, you know, try to get it in different sectors mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you just don't, you know, sit, hold and hope that the product goes up or that your trade, uh, or investment make money. Uh, now, obviously, the more you trade, the less capacity those those uh, strategies have. But I, I think the hallmark, I agree, is is active management. And you know, I'll, I'll the the other thing that I think, uh, and, and I'll make a comment. I got into an, uh, a lively discussion, call it, with a reporter in Chicago years ago that just couldn't understand. Um, why anyone would uh, invest in a hedge fund or anything other than just long bonds and long stocks. And uh, I said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of diversification and uh, that, uh, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. At some point, you're going to need that diversification. And, and I remember being in the late 90s uh, in a, I was in the office of, uh, well, of, of investment uh, bank in uh, in New York City, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we were trying to our program at that time. Obviously, it was very volatile. 
Uh, and we we're talking about compounding out at, let's say, 16, 17% with high correlation, non-correlation to equities and bonds. And the guy turned around, he goes, you got to be crazy. Why would I invest in a product like that? Because my my NASDAQ, and this was probably 99, uh, is my NASDAQ book is making 30% a year. So why in the world hmm. would I invest in something like this? And I said, well, it's, it's diversification. I mean, that's what we're selling, diversification. That's what alternative investments sell. And to have a broad-based portfolio with some active management diversification. And we know what happened after 99, 2000 and, you know, programs, you know, with that did utilize that non-correlation managed futures as just, you know, just took off in the early 2000s. So I think, you know, I, the hardest thing we've, our biggest and hardest job over the years has been convincing people uh, to invest in a, a, a program that at any given moment in time might underperform straight stocks and straight bonds, but uh, the non-correlation can be substantial and it's worth having a portion of your portfolio in an alternative investment. See, it's interesting because uh, it's, it's, it, there are those times, and this, is, this should be a wake-up call, I think, because this always seems to happen. There are all those times, those, those months and years where, and we've seen this a lot more in the last decade, U.S. stocks outperform. U.S. stocks outperform, right? Then you up emerging market stocks. Then U.S. stocks outperform. Then U.S. real estate. Then U.S. stocks outperform. And commodities have been kind of somewhere in the lower quadrant for a while, right? You know, we've seen that. And you get frustrated after a while. <laughs> it's like, uh, wait a yeah. minute. I want to diversify, but do I want to be stupid? I don't want to be right. right? You know, I mean, what, what's going on? And by the way, at that exact point when you're about to pull the trigger, don't. Because that's usually that pain point. Uh, I have found more often than not that uh, I have to get past that that pain point. It's like dieting. You know, you got to get past the first couple of weeks of not having the carbs to mm -hmm. really let it happen. But I feel like somehow it's it's when you get past that pain point that all of a sudden there's a turn. Like we saw, by the way, the miraculous turn in, um, we'll call it right around 2000-ish, with commodities that, I mean, just took off. That was something, right? Oh, it was, you know, that was a, that was a classic boom bust and you got into the boom cycle of uh, the commodities markets. And that had a, that had a substantial run for a number of years. Yeah. Amazing. So let's, let's just uh, wind this back for a second. Uh, tell me how you got and, uh, and, and, and how you got involved and interested more, more so interested in the area of commodities and futures um, as a, as a way to, to invest. Well, I, you know, in college, I was a finance uh, major. Uh, ironically, after grad school, um, I went into the uh, the same business year and I became and, and it was really a bad it, it was, uh, you know, when you're when you're 24 years old, you shouldn't go out and try to become a financial advisor. You have not nearly the contacts you need, the credibility. And it, I lasted about a a year, year and a half. Hmm. And, and it's just like, this is not for me. Uh, I always found the futures markets interesting. I think I made my first soybean trade when I was in grad school. Um, so I got a job over at the board of trade and never looked back. I was a member there for 25 years. And uh, at the same time, 
uh, had an opportunity to start to invest in some of these programs and then start a business utilizing, uh, if, if anyone has the time or uh, an inclination, uh, we, myself and a partner started uh, Dearborn Capital with some Richard Dennis turtle traders. It's, it's quite a story. It's worth the, you know looking up and reading about it. And uh, that's really uh, yeah, got me going um, in, in this business. So was, uh, it, was, it, tra- was it trend following? Yes, he was the, he was really one of the granddaddies of uh, trend following. And uh, so, you know so, that's that's really how we got that's really how I got started. So you could, do you do you know of you probably know of uh, know of uh, another uh, longtime podcast host uh, author, uh, Michael Koval? Oh sure, yeah, sure. He, he's uh, he wrote the Turtle Traders book. I mean, uh, you know about that, I should say. And yeah, uh, he, he's you know quite versed in the program. That's correct. Can I can I tell you something? I have tried to understand true trend following. I cannot. Maybe I know it and I don't know it. If you know what I'm saying, I cannot put my finger on how that's different from like some of the charting we do. I just can't. I, I've never been able to really um, understand what the concept of true, and I've had Michael on the show. We've talked about it and I still don't get it. I'm stupid, maybe. Well, you know, I, I guess it's it's pretty simple. And, uh, and I think it takes discipline. And you and I talked about this. Um, you know, the, if, if anyone again has the, I would look up a book called The Disciplined Trader. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's, it isn't different from what you do in charting. I mean, the, the difference is, and I do know, and I've, I've been through a million classes and, you know, if you look at Elliott Wave, people will say, you know, buy the, you know, okay, this is a second wave retracement seller, buy it for the big third wave. And, uh, but, but trend following tends to be, you know, buy breakouts or sell breakdowns. And uh, it's very difficult to do. Uh, it's difficult on a disciplined basis. Um you know, what most of the traders that I'm familiar with, um, they tend to do it in a broad based portfolio across them uh, and, and create a portfolio based on, uh, and there's not too many pure trend following. Uh, they, they all have certain attributes that they've added to their programs, but it is, it's, you know, buy more of what's working, sell less of what's not. Which is, and, which uh, is uh, that, that sounds less like, Sounds good to me, right? <laughs> well, you know, but it's to to do it in practice. You know, I, I if a stock goes from two dollars to ten dollars and that's the all time high, it's going to be very hard. Uh, you know, let's say ten dollars was the old high and it was five years ago, and it takes out ten dollars. A lot of people will say, "Well, I should have bought it at two dollars. Right. I'm not going to buy it at ten. Yeah. But the trend followers will buy more at. Uh, uh, at ten dollars, and, and and I I in the book The Market Wizards, which I'm sure you're familiar Jack with. Jack Swagger, was, Jack Swagger's been on yeah. the show many many times. Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of his comments, one of the comments from one of his writers was, you know, what makes you so successful? And and he said, well, I do the moron trade. I'm like, what the heck is the moron trade? And uh, I, you know, most people, and this is true, I can say, you know, I saw people on the floor for years do this, you know, they'll buy a hundred bonds and then they'll start selling them on the way up. Uh, this guy, you know, he'll buy a hundred bonds. He'll, he'll add to it. He goes, I put more on if the trade is working, I put more on. 
And uh, if it's not working, you know, I'll take it off. And I, I see people do the exact opposite. They'll scale out of trades. And it's a very hard thing to do. And, uh, but it is simple in its, its concept and, yeah. uh, and not simple in its execution it's, it's and like, the discipline. Yeah, it's like what's gone on with the U.S. dollar recently, uh, that first thrust higher recently. It's like, okay, that's good. Thanks. If you were, you know, if you were going that yeah. side and then you're like, oh, okay, well, it's, uh, you know what, it's starting to roll over a little bit. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, what happened there? It's up to a 40 year high against the yen or, yeah. you know, parity with the, with the Euro. Pretty amazing. What's your favorite, like historic, not now, but and I'm not saying what's the best. I'm asking your favorite. If you were to pick a favorite commodity to trade, like what, what's your go-to? Well, I, I guess I started for a short time. Like I say, the first trade I ever met was in soybeans. One of my more successful trades was in the soybeans, even though the 25 years I spent was in the financial room. Uh, you know, I, I like the grains because when they get hot, um, it's a pure commodity. And if, if, uh, if there's a supply issue, I mean, it can, you know, it can really run. So the grain complex, you know, soybean probably in particular, because they seem to have the most volatility. Um, you know, I, I like the grain complex. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I, I, I've, I have wandered the philosophical about if I am comfortable with speculation on a food product, forget heating, forget all that. I'm talking about a food product for a moment here, which is sustenance for the human condition. And whether I want uh, speculators, now I've gone both sides of this, right? I can understand the whole gamut of this. If I even want speculators involved in that, because the potential for pushing up corn, sugar, grain, uh, cattle, you know, pork belly slash whatever, you know, pick, pick whichever one it is, due to speculation, which could happen on an artificial basis, thereby causing much higher prices for me, it somehow doesn't sit well with me sometimes. Well, I think, you know, that's uh, admirable, but I, I guess I would disagree. Number one, farmers love higher prices. I'm old enough to remember when a whole slew of farmers came in to Chicago on their tractors and surrounded the board of trade because they were complaining <laughs> that terrible speculators were pushing down prices. And, you know, that's a, that's an asymmetric trade. If you, if you short corn at, let's say back then, $2.50, how low can it go? Can it go to a dollar fifty when, you know, the, uh, the government supports it at a dollar eighty? So really, how how much lower can it go now? If you buy it, if you buy it at two fifty, it could go to five dollars. It could go to six dollars. So now all of a sudden you're you're in the territory of making a hundred, you know, two hundred percent. And and the fact is, if it's out there, uh, and uh, the the grain that is, and in the bin, and you drive it from two fifty, pure speculators, which pure speculators don't just drive the market. Uh, that I'm adamant about. If they they take it from two fifty to five dollars, and and uh, you know I married into a farm family. If if they have a lot of uh, uh, beans in the elevator, you know they'll be rushing. If they think it's grossly overpriced based on current yields, crop input prices, um, they'll be trucking that to the uh, elevator that day. They'll, they'll be taking it to the river to sell that day. Mm -hmm. And that's going to put pressure on, uh, and that's going to stall the rally. So, because if it's just, it's not just one 
uh, farmer. It's going to be all the farmers or a great many of them. Right. Uh, so I don't think the speculators per se, uh, they might drive it in, in the short term and they, you know, let's, let's say they can push it 5%. At the end of the day, yields are going to dictate, uh, and demand is going to dictate yields and, and yields. We're not talking about interest rates. You're talking about yields on the product you, you, on, from the farm. Yeah. How, how many uh, bushel per acre they're getting out of their corn and beans. So now you're in the, you're in the, invo you're involved. I'm kind of fascinated about this. Uh, you know, Tommy Grisafi, he's been on the show a few times. Also, he's a trader. Um, we've had several different commodity traders, but not something we really talk about that often. That's why I want to talk to you, but you, you're dealing with beans, right? You're dealing with soybeans and there you are thinking about making a trade and do you, how, how much time do you need to, I'm not talking about always, but generally speaking, right? How much time do you need to be dealing with things like uh, amount of fertilizer that's been put down due to cost factors or the climate condition uh, in a particular region, uh, rain slash drought slash heat slash, you know, whatever? Well, uh, for us, and most of the algorithmic traders that I I know, they they won't look at that. Ninety uh, percent of them are price driven, and they're going to say price is going to reflect the underlying fundamentals that are accruing to that market. So uh, the, that will not be. Now there are there are a very select few handful of ag traders that are just ag traders and uh, they'll either do it for their own account or their own, uh, you know, or a small fund because there is limited capacity uh, and they're making concentrated uh, trades in, in specific markets as opposed to, they're not getting that diversification benefit that a, a different type of uh, portfolio manager might get. Mm -hmm. Um, they will look very deeply into the fundamentals of, okay, you know, what's the weather looking at? I mean, uh, I have a friend who puts out a newsletter. I mean, he can tell you, he can tell you if it rained this morning, I saw it come through and he can tell you if it rained last night in uh, Brazil, he can tell you if, uh, uh, you know, what current yields are. He's got, you know, a slew of clients that will report to him what his yields right. are. Right. Their current yields are looking so. That's like I mean, me with fishing. Really I'll, you know, if you're a fisherman, you know, I'll tell you what that's like. If you're a fisherman, you're like, oh, the moon is full. Okay. They got the tide coming up. We got the Wahoo coming off of the East coast. Right. That's right. That's good. And you know, it's like fishermen. Also, we see a lore on TV that looks like it's catching fish. You're like, you know what? Just buy it. Just buy it. Just buy it. Because right. we, we're very, we're suckers for information like that that could enhance our opportunity. Just like buying those weather reports, not that you're suckers, but, but buying those weather reports, buying the crop yield information, it, you know, hopefully is going to give you an edge. Let's talk about, you mentioned something. Um, you mentioned the, you, you opened a door on this algorithmic trading. Can you give me a working definition of that? An algorithmic. Oh, you're 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 asking me. I you, you caught me here. I, I certainly know what it is. No, no, no. Uh, I understand that. But, but what, what, what is it? I mean, there's different types, right? There's some that are that, that are that are machine learning style. There are some that are as simple as if price goes above this level and range wise, and you know, it, it just just order it, right? You know, it, it's it's machine based, though, right? That 100% machine based. It's. Uh, 
for the most part, like I say, it tends to, to concentrate in, let's say, four or five sectors where they're, they're looking at a broad base of markets. Um, it all begins, and I want to emphasize this, uh, it all begins with risk management. So they don't mm. want to make a constant, like, like I said earlier, you have that ag trader that sits there and studies the fundamentals and, and he's making a concentrated bet. Um, and he's basing that on a fundamental decision that he thinks he can get an edge on. And then he'll make a, he might make a big bet. Uh, uh, the opposite is true on an algorithmic trader. He's, he's, he, and I, and I say he, he, she, or the program it says, okay, my, my back testing of data that goes 20, 10, 20 years is going to uh, look at the data and suggest that every time it breaks above or does a certain um, uh, metric that the algorithm is looking for, it's going to put on a trade. How it sizes that trade can be done. And and that's really where a lot of the uh, system is. It's based on, you know, it starts with risk. You know, the old marriage was, you know, don't let them carry out the board. Uh, Don't let them carry out on your shield on the, uh, from the floor. You want to live to trade another day. And so manage your risk, manage your risk. That's where it starts with risk management. And, um, and more often than not, uh, and again, I've I've uh, interviewed uh, hundreds of of uh, algorithmic managers. Uh, very few of them have just one trading system. There'll be multiple trading systems on multiple tri- time frames, uh, and it all devolves though at the beginning of risk. Yes. How do we manage the portfolio, and how do we create a portfolio uh, in sectors that are not correlated to each other? And then collectively are, are non-correlated to traditional equity and bond markets so that you can put it into a portfolio. You can benefit from its use uh, because if it, if it has a high degree of correlation to the equities and it falls short by, you know, 4%, 3% a year, well, why do we, you won't raise any money. Why would you invest in that? I'll just go with the equities. Right. You know, it's interesting. I have a, a, a colleague friend, uh, a couple of them, but they work for hedge funds. One of them is uh, a compliance officer, and we've talked about some of the risk management styles they have. And they're a little bit different. Uh, they're not algorithmic traders, but they too will have, you know, because it's like uh, it's like horses, right? That that you have to sometimes rein in and um, make sure that they don't do something stupid, like keep running and run right over the cliff. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, they have edicts that say, you know, if you are down X amount uh, over a period of time and concentrated in this way, you know, you cut the trade, end of sentence, that's it, done on a compliance-based um, mandate, right? So that it's all about risk there too. Yeah, or or we would have in our particular firm and a lot of firms, you would actually have a risk manager right. that will look at at that. So, you know, uh, in a, uh, on, our, on our products, for example, yeah, every day we look to see, you know, what the performance was that it bust through any limits that we had. Uh, and then if it did, what were the causes of that? And, uh, and also if there's an increase or decrease in risk, uh, how much was that increase? Does it fall within the parameters we understand that program to be? Uh, and what sector did it happen in? So, I mean, every day we'll have eyes and, and all firms will and should have eyes on the portfolio so that 
um, you know, you, you always hear about, uh, you know, rarely, but you do hear about, uh, you know, a trader that went renegade or something like that. Uh, that tends to happen more, not in an algorithmic uh, setting, but in more uh, concentrated portfolios that have uh, uh, discretionary traders and not algorithmic traders. That use also, um, a lot of times use leverage also. Yes, absolutely. And, and and that's not to say, you know, uh, and someone says, well, what if your computer makes a mistake? Uh, and we, we, we ask that too. Okay. How do you do that? And, you know, one of the, uh, you know, uh, we'll use a, a uh, an advisor, for example, that will run his, his program in two different languages in two different computers. And at the end of the day, the, the, uh, the orders have to match up yeah. because uh, he doesn't want to send in a thousand lot when it should be a buy if it's supposed to be a hundred lot. So there's a lot of checks and balances, but it, it all goes to risk management. What, uh, what commodities are no touch for you? What, what areas do you just, you just don't like, you don't, you don't really want to work with? Well, uh, when I say commodities, I should, I should say the, the, the gamut of, 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 Futures and things of that nature it doesn't have to be only commodities. Well, it's it's really based on open interest and volume. So, if if you're running a program that you hope to have, let's say one or two uh, two billion dollars in I'm trading rough rice, for example, or canola, is really it's it's not going to give you much diversity. It could give you diversification if you could trade it a lot, but the open interest and uh, the open interest and volume in that product is not going to lend itself to any meaningful allocation to your to your system. So you, you're just going to have to, uh, you know, we we don't look at a uh, a commodity as a no touch from I, I I object to that commodity or the only thing we look at is is it liquid and you know what's the open interest and those those are basically hand in hand concepts so with that uh, so, in mind with that in mind i'm sure you have looked into the world of crypto as a potential uh does that have the kind of liquidity that you can even get near no we wouldn't uh you know in, until it gets more liquid no even looking at the cmes uh ethereum and uh uh bitcoin contract it's not uh well number one i think the, the regulation is still out on it. Mm -hmm. I think the SEC would like to uh, be the one. Gensler would love to regulate it. I think, uh, you know, the way what I'm hearing is it might go to the CFTC. But regardless, um, at, at this point in time, that's not to say it's, you know, it's exhibited a high degree of correlation most recently in uh, against equities. It's risk off. It's, you know, risk off, take everything off. And, and uh, crypto has has gone along in that. I, think, I mean, I think, I think uh, I, if I may just uh, jump in here for one second, I've been thinking about that. This whole idea that it was like, oh, it's just a Nasdaq proxy now. I'm thinking, oh, okay. Does that make sense to me? I'm thinking about that. You know, does that make sense? Why would it be just a Nasdaq proxy? I started thinking about it. You know, it, it's it seems to be correlated, which then therefore can be uh, brought out to other areas with just the sense of 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 actual liquidity that's out there, right? You know, that, that's hurt the NASDAQ too, the, uh, the, the financial conditions tightening. 
And it seems to me that that is more of the issue that it was play money that was used to buy play money, right? So this idea that during the times of, of excess stimulus through monetary policy and fiscal stimulus, that it was a boondoggle to just, hey, I don't care. Let's see what happens. I can tell you that I invested during the last three years with the idea that, you know what, I'm going to put money in. If I lose it all, I don't care. Now, what kind of what kind of, of, of money management is that, right? <laughs> Where you, that's the hope trade, right? right. Well, that, that's stupid. I, I, Maybe it's a stupid trade. You could say it. No, I'm, I'm biased. I, I, I'm a believer. I have, I have a wallet. I, I'm an investor in a fund. Uh, uh, I have a small GP in that fund. Uh, so I'm a believer in the concept, but I just don't mix it with any, it's a small fund. I don't just mix it with the more traditional alternative investments because I don't think it's there yet, but I believe in what the blockchain can do. I think it can be revolutionary, but, and quite disruptive, but it's, you know, it's a nascent technology. And yeah. I think- there's some things, custody, ease of use that have to be overcome. But once that happens, I'm, I'm very bullish on it. I'm bullish on the concept as well, especially with the smart contract concept, with the ability to utilize it not only for, well, blockchain, X currency, right? X, X Ethereum, X, the concept of blockchain usability for that as a um, opportunity for, uh, I'm thinking very, very. I just want to. I'm saying basically this core, core, you know, storage, distribution, uh, information sharing, security. There's some cool stuff there. When it comes to the other stuff, the the um, I guess that we just have to. We we everybody got too giddy too fast. Agreed. On, you know, on some of the stuff, and 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 once again, we talked about this in the beginning. Once again, what was the downfall recently was the excessive use of leverage to try to squeeze these ridiculous, I mean, I looked at the opportunity to say, oh, put your Bitcoin on deposit with us, we'll give you 15%. I'm thinking, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The only last time I saw that was, there was a bank in Antigua, Alan, um, it ended up being a Ponzi scheme. Alan, uh, I forgot his last name. And I was approached by them for one of my clients. And they said, listen, what we're going to do. We're going to take the money. We're going to take your clients a million dollars. Uh-huh. And we're going to put it in this uh, this investment. And basically, we're going to leverage it up because we get 3% on bond rates right now. I'm like, uh-huh. Well, if we leverage it up three times, we get 9%. I'm like, you do? How's that work? But okay, yeah. keep talking. We went through this whole thing, right? And I'm like, okay, so I hear what you're saying. What the killer for me was, because the leverage thing and all that was just this weird, maybe they could do it, maybe they couldn't. It doesn't seem right to me. But the one killer was that the bank and everything was backed in Antigua. And I happened to take a ride to Antigua and I saw the bank in the middle of a cow pasture. <laughs> and I said to my client, ain't happening, you know, <laughs> which ended up being a Ponzi scheme. A pretty big one yeah, back in the day. I, that was that, you know, there, there were some very crazy things uh, occurring in there. And uh, but, you know, I, I think uh you had a, a, obviously a substantial washout, and uh, I think some of that, a lot of those excesses should not and will not come back. Yeah. So I think it'll be a more measured approach this time. That'll be good. So uh, looking forward, and we have a lot of things on the table right now. We have uh, OPEC now basically putting a floor under the price of oil, it seems. 
with the latest commentary, they're like, hey, you know, we don't like prices this low. <laughs> That's what they said. You know, that was at least the reporting that was said. Again, a lot of this stuff does not enter into the world that you live in in terms of algorithmic trading because whether or not that impacts price, you'll see it in the price. Therefore, that's what you trade on. That's, uh, I think, a pretty good uh well, yeah, yeah, I know, but it, just by dint of being so involved in a broad range of these markets, it's, I mean, you're constantly looking for either affirmation of, you know, our position, et cetera. So we're always constantly reading is, is far too much, uh, uh, both on the political side and the economic fundamental side uh, of what's going on in these markets. And, uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you're not supposed to touch the algorithm, so we don't. And uh, and and that's really what you know. You want to make sure is how you're, the disciplined application of uh, the program. And uh, so, so bu- building algorithms for years. You've been building them for years, right? And working working with them for years, I would say, right? Yes. Yes. So I've done a good amount of back testing and algorithms and all, and I actually never really put them into position besides one. Um, which I which I actually um, took off. I only had it on for a little while, and I said, you know what, this is not really working. Um, how often do you get tempted to say, ah, need to tweak? You know, uh, you know, if only we would have said buy two contracts uh, instead of one at that price, as an example. Uh, you know, that look at that historical, and let's do another let's do another back test because maybe things have changed in the last year. Do you get tempted a lot? Oh, I. I- uh, it's beyond temptation. Uh, everyone, everyone does it. Everyone does. It. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I, I don't want to say, you know, f- let's say from 2000 to 2010, you ran an algorithm, a back test. It worked. Okay. That's, that's it. It worked. We're going to use it for the next 40 years. Uh, that would, that would be quite naive because, uh, you know, the markets do tend to change. So most of the traders that I know of, will use a, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put a heavier, they'll continue to do back test. That gets to your point of, you know, machine learning per se. Uh, it, it, it's going to go back and reevaluate the, the data. And, you know, I'm going to make this up. If the algorithm for the last 10 years or five years had a, a coefficient, I'm just making this up a 0.15. Okay. It, looking back, you know, we have to, that that coefficient gets changed to 0.14 or 0.13. It's it's not a big change. It's not a wholesale change, but the data that we've examined going back the last three years has said, you know, this market is changing a little bit, and uh, and you have to become aware of it. So I think that's the machine learning aspect. Now, what do you call it? Machine learning or just examining a new set of data points. Uh, I'll let you be the judge. Forward testing. Right. Uh, Yeah. Right. Everything is, you know, there, there it's, and then everything will be walked forward again. And, uh, oh yeah. I mean, it's, uh, any firm that I'm aware of that's worth its salt is, is out constantly, you know, testing, retesting, trying. I mean, one famous, not famous example, one example I was, talking to someone we did business with and they called and said they were very, very excited, very excited with some preliminary research they did. They think it's really going to be a sea change. And, you know, I'm getting excited that they're this excited. 
And, uh, you know, three, four weeks later, I called up and said, hey, whatever happened with that new program? They're like, you know what? We kept testing it. We did a broader uh, sample size. We did this. We did this. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't what we thought it was. No. On to the next research project. So gotcha. I mean, it, it happens. It happens. I mean, it happens. Yeah, yeah, of and, course. So you know, you, we should have moved the decimal over a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, who put the plus sign there? That was supposed to be divided. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on, David Cavanaugh with a K. Uh, and uh, sharing some of your expertise and, and 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 very deep knowledge about the area of not only commodities but alternative investing and algorithmic trading and all that. So I really do appreciate uh, you coming on board today and, and spending some time with us on the discipline of, discipline investor, which is different than the different discipline trader. Yes, but I uh, appreciate the time, Andrew. All right, uh, have when, a good one. When in Florida and when in Chicago, I'm coming up for a hot dog. I will take you to a beef place. That's no great. hot dog. Beef. <laughs> Perfect. All right, thanks. All right. Have a great day. You too now. Bye-bye. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Discipline Investor Podcast, episode number 779. Yes, that means we did 779 episodes. That means divide that by 52, and you can figure out how many years we've been doing this, plus a little bit more. Thanks for joining me. Uh, make sure to go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com and see all that is available for you, the various podcasts and things that we have, as well as the strategies that we manage for clients. So check it out. I'm going to see you again next week. Thanks for joining me. So long, guys. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.